As Israelis prepare to go to elections on Tuesday, November 1st, final polls have been taken. Israel and Lebanon have signed an agreement establishing maritime borders and settling offshore gas claims. And finally, Inside Israel News has audio of Bibi Netanyahu and his supporters as to why he should return as prime minister. Welcome to Inside Israel News, your home for unbiased and thorough analysis of Israeli news politics, current events in the Middle East, and world news. Or as the internet trolls say, mouthpiece of the Zionist conspiracy, spokesman for the elders of Zion, highly paid propagandist of the Mossad. Yeah, no. This is Inside Israel News. I'm your host, Isaac Kite. Welcome back, insiders, the erudite, highly informed audience of this podcast. If you're an Israel insider, you know everything. You are kept well informed because you listen to this podcast and you know not only what is going on in Israel, but also uh, you stay abreast of world news. Speaking of world news, or rather news not directly related to Israel, although it it may have an impact, as with all things, as I've said, uh, world news does ultimately have an impact on Israel uh, because Israel is part of the world, right? Uh, Midterm elections are coming up here in the U.S. Uh, As I've mentioned, there are great places to get good analysis of that. Uh, The verdict with Ted Cruz and Newt's World, among others. But you can also get great analysis on politicalvanguard.com. Politicalvanguard.com is the home of Inside Israel News. But in the contributor section, you'll find my latest article, The Red Wave Among Minority Voters. Interesting changes in uh, demographic voting patterns that uh, are coming up in polls using, uh, I want to say, like established pollsters like USA Today that are not right wing or biased. And and obviously uh, pollsters like Rasmussen and uh, Trafalgar are much more accurate because they poll better. They have a better methodology in polling. But, you know, if USA Today comes out with a poll and says something, obviously that's something I can use that is harder for people to argue with. So that's why I I go with that. But uh, even USA Today, even left-wing, left-biased pollsters are finding that uh, demographic voting patterns for the coming election are not what they used to be. And uh, there are a lot of huge changes coming to the way people vote uh, that have massive implications for the election. And I, I discuss a number of close elections that could be impacted by uh, those uh, those changes. So if you're interested in that, politicalvanguard.com, the red wave among minority voters. It is there in the contributor section just below uh, the main headlines. So back to our, our Inside Israel news topics. The election is coming up. Uh, this episode I'm recording just before elections in Israel. Uh, I had intended to get out a few days ago, but I have been busier going to be. It has been quite a week, let me tell you. Uh, I was so grateful for Shabbat and a day of rest after uh, this this week has just been... I've been all over the country. In any case, uh, exciting times. But um, with uh, the election coming up, I wanted to get one more episode in. So in the last episode, I had audio from Ehud Barak, and I allowed that episode to be taken up by all of the left's talking points in the Israeli election. So now you have a firmer stance or firmer understanding of what the Israeli left is thinking 
going into this election. Well, this episode is the other. This is what is the Israeli right thinking. And they are a little different because, as I, I discussed uh, in the last uh, episode, the left is uh, a number of different issues going on. And when I say left, I mean, you know, center left and far right parties even that are all in the change block opposed to Bibi Netanyahu as prime minister. That's collectively the left, I want to say. Uh, because it is uh, that group that does not want Bibi Netanyahu personally to be prime minister, whereas the group that does, the, this Bibiism, as they call it in, in Israel, uh, is uh, what I'll be discussing today. So before I, I get into that, though, I want to tell you a little bit about this maritime deal with Lebanon. This is an awesome deal. I've talked about the details a little bit before. Uh, basically, Lebanon claimed significant chunk of its including waters claimed by Israel that are obviously right off of the coast of Israel. And this is important because there's natural gas in the Mediterranean. Uh, we've found a bunch of gas uh, pockets, let's just say, gas under, under the seafloor uh, that can be exploited. And uh, more fields are being found every day. I mean, you just had a, another 15 billion cubic feet found, uh, you know, just a couple weeks ago. Uh, I also mentioned that in the podcast. So these borders are very, very important. And while Lebanon claimed uh, a lot of stuff right off of its coast, it also claimed a significant chunk of Israeli territory, uh, including uh, one of Israel's gas fields, the Karish field, which uh, Israel claimed entirely. And uh, Israel's claim went up north of uh, up toward the Lebanese border where it included part of the Kana field, uh, gas field. So uh, with the war in Ukraine, gas prices are through the roof. Uh, <clears throat> now Europe is going to need gas in the future. So if you're investing in developing natural gas, that's really awesome. In the last episode, uh, which I did World News, I talked about a number of conflicts in the world in Cabo Delgado, in Azerbaijan and Armenia that uh, are impacted by the demand for gas. And uh, those have made those kinds of conflicts and those kinds of issues far more important. So you can go back to that episode, uh, episode 75, and get that news. But here, Israel and Lebanon agreed to a maritime line. <coughs> that line sets, uh, you know, south of the Kana field and north of the Karish field. So Israel didn't give away its main gas field. It just gave up claims to the Kana field. Now, while Israel is giving up the territorial claim to the Kana field, it is not giving up entirely its financial claim. Uh, Israel is negotiating with Total Energies, the French energy company that Lebanon is bringing in to develop the Kana field uh, to make sure that Israel will get a percentage of the gas from uh based on Israel's percentage of the claims. So Israel is going to get some of that revenue anyway, and that will offset, uh, I would say, compensate Israel for giving up claim to that field. Nevertheless, there's no further reason for Lebanon to harass or otherwise disturb Israel's maritime claims. And again, with Europe needing more gas supplies and needing to source gas from places other than Russia, this is a really good deal for both countries because they'll both be able to prosper from it in the future. Now, uh, the protests continue in Iran. <clears throat> I, I like I've said, it is, it's difficult to be optimistic because this kind of thing has happened before and the Iranian regime has survived. But uh, this is a little different than past protests and riots. Uh, 
many Iranians tend to uh, are showing uh, a real frustration with the regime and its corruption and all of the problems that have resulted in Iran from U.S. sanctions, uh, which are still on in significant part because uh, some of them have been lifted, but you know not all. Uh, because Donald Trump pulled out of the nuclear deal that Iran signed with the Obama administration that had no teeth and really didn't actually agree to do anything. They uh, supposedly would reduce their uranium enrichment and could develop a nuclear bomb in 10 years. And the whole point was, well, we'll, we'll buy you 10 years. Uh, at a, as a result, of course, they got pallets of cash uh, and uh, Iranians have... Let's just say the, the people of Iran have noted that while piles of cash arrived, they haven't received any of those benefits, <clears throat> right? It is the elites of Iran who are making all the money and getting all of the goodies, and the people of Iran continue to live in poverty and don't have opportunities for their future. So there's, uh, there's a lot there, and when the religious police uh, killed, beat to death, Masa Amini, for refusing to wear her headscarf, her hijab, right? Uh, then the Iranians rose up, and so the, the violence continues. It's been different this time around because protesters have been shooting back, and a number of Iranian officials have been killed, and uh, Republican Guards members have been killed. Uh, there's been... Uh, violence is much more widespread throughout Iran, and there's been a lot of protests uh, around the world. People are protesting in support of the Iranian protesters, but also in Iran, there have been uh, pictures going out on social media of girls uh, pictured from behind, so their faces are not visible, but, you know, giving the bird, flipping the bird, let's say, to the picture of Ayatollah Khomeini in their classroom. You know, their hair uncovered, right? <clears throat> so... Uh, there's there's stuff like that going on. And these are much more courageous protests in a country where that can get you arrested and potentially beaten to death versus, uh, you know, over here where we have freedom, okay? So that continues. Will it lead to any significant change in the Iranian regime? That I can't say. I wish it were possible. Uh, as I've said before, Iranians are, are very intelligent, capable, industrious people, very scientific. Uh, the world would definitely be blessed by a free, democratic, modern Iran uh, that is uh, contributing to the global economy. Uh, first of all, their, their oil and gas would be pretty valuable right about now. Uh, but, but again, uh, a very scientific and very capable people who would uh, definitely be a boon to the global economy. Uh, so, well, I, I can only hope for a free Iran because a free Iran would be uh, that blessing. All right. <clears throat> elections. So looking at uh, election scenarios and election polls, uh, the polls are uh, so they, they stopped taking polls in Israel on uh, the, the Friday before the election. Right. And the Reason for this, you know, at a certain point, there's no point in polling, you know, a few days before the election. Only the exit polls are conducted on election day. Uh, but basically, Israel kind of acknowledges that polls can disrupt elections. Sometimes you have those polls that show, you know, so-and-so is going to win, and that can suppress voters or discourage voters. We get a lot of that here in the U.S. You know, back in 2020, we had all these polls that suggested that the election was a landslide for Biden. And yet, you know, when the final results were tallied, such as they are, uh, it was a squeaker. 
just barely, just narrowly, and the GOP gained 12 seats in the House when they were supposed to lose 25. I guess uh, that didn't work out so well uh, for the pollsters. Uh, extremely inaccurate polls. Well, we Israel has the same problem. The polls last time were quite a bit off. Uh, they, they looked a little better for Bibi in some ways. Uh, but also, as I discussed before, um, there are demographic groups in Israel that are difficult to poll. Uh, the Haredi, the old uh, the what you'll hear people refer to as the ultra-Orthodox. The Orthodox Jews in Israel are difficult to poll. The Arab Israelis are difficult to poll. Uh, it's difficult to get accurate polling answers out of those groups and to know whom to poll, uh, who's going to turn out, and what you know. try to get an idea of what they're actually thinking. So with those caveats in mind, uh, <clears throat> and, and a number of commentators have been talking about how pollsters seem to keep assuming that Orthodox voters are going to vote the way Orthodox voters have in the past. So in a lot of cases, they, I want to say, they sort of circumscribe their polls with past data, filling in holes here and there, you know, just assuming, for example, that uh, Hadash Ta'al, the, the Arab party, the, the non-aligned Arab party that just left the joint list, uh, that they'll clear the threshold, right? Uh, or assuming that a certain number of uh, Orthodox Jews are going to vote for the Shas party and it might earn eight seats and the United Torah Judaism party, the other Orthodox party would receive eight, seven. Uh, whereas those may not necessarily be based on any kind of solid polling numbers. <clears throat> so we don't know. Could more of those Orthodox people uh, be considering voting for the religious Zionist party? That's hard to say. Um, but... Uh, you know, taken with a grain of salt, polls do give us a ballpark idea of what people are generally thinking. Uh, and, and here's where they're at. <clears throat> What's been interesting to see how is how in the last few weeks, Yeshatid, uh, the party led by Yair Lapid, who is currently prime minister, has jetted up in the poll numbers. Uh, he started off in the sort of 18 to 20 range, and now Yeshatid is up polling in the 25 to 27 range. Uh, so that shows that Yeshatid has become a powerful party. Yair Lapid has quickly elevated his party to second place. Uh, and the Labour Party and the traditional left-wing party has collapsed, right? So Israel doesn't have a second party. It doesn't have a main left-wing, center-left party. The Likud is the main secular center-right party, increasingly right, but mostly dedicated to doing whatever Bibi Netanyahu says these days. Um, Yair Lapid's party is also, likewise, pretty strongly based around him personally, uh, but he has championed a number of uh, issues for the center-left, remaining a free market party, generally speaking, but also a center-left party. Well, with him jetting up to 27 seats or so, he's starting to get to a place where he himself competes with Bibi. And that's interesting because in the past, Yair Lapid was considered one of those guys who was here today and gone tomorrow. Israeli politics is littered with these people who they make a bang in one election, get a lot of votes, maybe earn 10, 12 seats. And then the next election, they get five or six. And then after that, they're gone. Right. Well, Yair Lapid got 19 seats his first election in 2013. That was quite a surprise. Declined after that for a while, but he's back up. 
He's he's definitely holding steady, and that shows a, a prominent position for him. National Unity, which is the coalition, or the I should say the joint list of uh, New Hope and Blue and White. So Benny Gantz and Gidon Saar. Gidon Saar is a former Likudnik who left the the right wing party because of Bibi Netanyahu. So these two are both opposed to Bibi. Their combined party is pulling at ten, about <clears throat> right. Uh, so they're in third place. After which we have Shas, the, the Orthodox Party, uh, followed by Labor, uh, or excuse me, followed by United Torah Judaism, the other left Orthodox Party, and, and so on and so forth. Um, so, oh, excuse me, I should say, National Unity is in fourth place. That's what I was I was trying to come to. The Religious Zionist Party and Otzma Yehuda, um, uh, Otzma Yehuda, it, it, it's like Otzma. Oh my God. So uh, these far right parties were originally put together by Bibi to try to help him get uh, more seats that could help bring him over the top. People too far right to vote for Likud. Uh, and it, it's just ballooned. Uh, it's five political parties now. Uh, it has, it's polling at 14, 15 seats. So they're polling in third place. So that's uh, clarify earlier. They're polling just below, you know, they're polling in between Yeshatid and National Unity. Uh, and that, that's the big surprise of this election. You've heard uh, Ehud Barak refer to them. You know, he called them messianics, people who don't have real political solutions, but just think that if they're really hardline in their religious views and what have you, somehow, magically, problems will just solve themselves. Uh, and Otsma has a history, as a Kahanist party, a history of advocating violence, right? The violent removal uh, is their sort of implied position regarding uh, the Arabs. Uh, so very much out of touch with mainstream Israeli politics. And already uh, in the U.S., pro-Israel figures like uh, Senator, Ro um, Senator uh, Robert Menendez of New Jersey, Democrat of New Jersey, uh, have expressed concern that if this party is in the, in the coalition, that will be uh, strain, that will strain U.S.-Israel relations because it's pretty extreme and, and is, you know, America is not, you know, able to tolerate those kinds of views. <clears throat> uh, then we have the, you know, well, obviously we have the Orthodox. They have 15 seats together. Uh, Labor is at, uh, pulling around six seats. Um, now, in a lot of the most recent polls, you have the you have three parties that are down close to the electoral threshold. <clears throat> I've talked about this before. Because Israel is a proportional system, Parties receive their the number of seats out of the 120 members of the Knesset based on their proportion of the vote. So there's a minimum threshold. In order to receive seats in the Knesset, you have to get three and a quarter percent of the total votes, right? Well, uh, at this point, three parties are right on that threshold. Uh, one of them is Meretz. Meretz is a, a left-wing protest party uh, already... Um, there's the cry has gone out that a lot of people are afraid Meretz is going to disappear. There was talk of Meretz merging with Labour. Uh, Mirav Mikhaili, who leads Labour, whose positions are as far left as Meretz's positions, has refused to do that. <clears throat> I think she's looking at the situation strategically. If Meretz falls below the threshold, that party is likely to disappear forever, leaving Labour the main left-wing party, like hard-left party. And so if you're looking for a left-wing protest vote, you would go to Avodah, to Labor, right, rather than uh, to Meretz. So 
that may be strategic for her, but it would be difficult for the change bloc because without Meretz's votes, uh, that could put Bibi Netanyahu over the top. First of all, in, in proportionality, obviously, if those four seats aren't in the Knesset, then the seats are distributed along a new proportionality where, you know, there might be more seats based on certain percentages of the vote, right? Uh, Ra'am, <clears throat> Mansour Abbas's party, a religious nationalist Arab party that served in the change bloc before, the current, you know, the current outgoing government. Uh, and of course, Hadash Ta'al. Hadash Ta'al is a, is a joint list of two parties. Hadash is basically the Arab Communist Party, and Ta'al uh, is the secular nationalist Arab party. <laughs> it's... You know, I've explained all of these in earlier episodes when I did the last election, so <clears throat> you can go back to those episodes and look, and I, I tell you which parties I talk about in the description of each episode. Uh, those are also available on politicalvanguard.com if you want to scroll down, uh, or you can go to insideisrael.news, the website for Inside Israel News, and, and look those uh, episodes up there as well. Um, other than that, things are pretty stable. Uh, Jewish home, Bayit HaYehudi, where Eilat Shaked, formerly of uh, Yemina, with Naftali Bennett, the, uh, the past prime minister, uh, her party is polling at 2%, so they're one and a quarter percent below the threshold. Uh, Balad, which is another Arab party, uh, this one is polling uh, at two and three quarter percent, so about half a percent under the threshold. Could they make the threshold? Who knows? Right. That's that's not clear. So um, in the most recent polls, basically the change block, if merits clear, clears the threshold, the change block has 56 seats. Netanyahu's block has 60, exactly half, but not a majority. And uh, Hadash Ta'al, the the Arab party that is aligned with neither, uh, has four seats. So basically it's 50 50 between pro and anti Bibi Netanyahu forces. Right including Hadash Ta'al with the anti-Bibi, even though they're not pro-change block either. So a lot of this is going to come down to how many people turn out. Uh, what is Arab turnout? If, if Arab turnout is depressed, that could impact the election in favor of Bibi. Uh, now I should note, a large number of Arabs vote for Likud, uh, so he doesn't want that depressed too much. Uh, but uh, if they don't turn out for, say, uh, the Hadash Ta'al party or for Ra'am, that could be a problem. Or perhaps maybe they make a last-minute shift and voters that would otherwise have voted for Hadash Tal could turn to Balad, putting Balad in instead. So there's a lot of back and forth there, a lot of possibilities. But um, at this point, <clears throat> looking at the three kind of scenarios, right? BB wins, Lapid wins, or they go to another election. Uh, at this point, <clears throat> uh, BB is much closer to winning. And I mentioned that he's had a lead going into this uh election and he has maintained it at this point we call it a four seat lead i guess you could say uh but really you know he's very close to a majority depending on how which parties clear the threshold the proportionality or what have you it is not inconceivable that uh the bb aligned parties i've mentioned the religious zionists the two orthodox parties and likud all totaled could reach 61 or even 62 seats and have a majority that could form a government now, there are scenarios that are being kicked around out there. If that were the case, would uh, maybe Benny Gantz and Gidon Sa'ar negotiate to join the government so that uh, the radical extreme wouldn't be needed? Maybe, but 
I don't know. I mean, you know, a lot of election promises go out the window after election day. Um, never say never in Israeli politics, <clears throat> but it's not as likely. Um, Bibi is unlikely to turn his back on the religious Zionists and the far right after they've gained so many seats, gained such popularity, driven themselves up into potentially into third place. I mean, the final election results aren't here, so it, it's possible. Let's say that that Benny Gantz and Gidon Saar could edge them out and get ahead somehow, uh, un, but unlikely. Uh, so Bibi's not likely to turn his back on that party. He'll just accept the strain that it puts on uh, U.S.-Israel relations and hope that, you know, what probably a week later will be an incoming Republican Congress uh, might help him kind of, you know, in their strong support for Israel, maybe help uh, push the U.S. government to look the other way. Also, I mean, in, in two years, in 2024, America is having another presidential election. Uh, and as I've described in the article on uh, Political Vanguard that I wrote, uh, The Red Wave, it, the way demographics are changing, things are starting to look up for the GOP in 2024. So that, that's that. All right. When I'm back from the break, uh, I'm going to have audio from Bibi Netanyahu and uh, talk about the... Um, you know, what, what are like, what, what are the pros and cons of BB himself? Since this is very personal to him, those on his side, the right are generally speaking more or less for BB, but what is that? What are, what are they, uh, what do they hope to achieve? What are their goals? What do they think is good about BB? So we'll, we'll go into that and I'll have my uh, audio clips for you, uh, again, after the break. <laughs> Now that we're back from the break, uh, pros and cons of Bibi Netanyahu, right? Uh, now I, I've had, again, in the past episode, uh, and I'll go through them quickly so that we can end on the positive, right? Uh, there, I've talked a lot about uh, the challenges Bibi Netanyahu faces and those who don't like him and their issues. Again, last episode, I had audio from Ehud Barak, uh, Bibi's longtime rival uh, and uh, the only political leader who's actually beaten Bibi outright uh, in an election. So uh, that was some interesting audio. Uh, Bibi Netanyahu has his court cases. Uh, these are uh, cases for corruption. They allege quid pro quos that benefited, in one case, uh, communications company Bizek uh, in exchange for Bizek making positive coverage of Bibi Netanyahu. A couple of other cases out there as well. <clears throat> so uh, with these cases, as I've said, I mean, the witnesses are extremely biased. It's obvious that, that these charges are trumped up, right? They're really pushing it. The evidence is circumstantial. But there are several cases. And as Ehud Barak told you in, in the last episode, uh, election episode, the last Israel-focused episode, uh, back in episode 74, uh, with that audio, uh, it, like 97% of Israeli cases, there's some kind of conviction, some kind of punishment is issued. Uh, the Israeli court system basically operates on the idea that if you've been charged, that you've done something wrong. Right now, in America, conviction rates vary. Uh, and while we have high conviction rates in the U.S., part of that is that we have a lot of plea bargains over here. A lot of criminals, knowing that they're guilty, prefer not to go before juries and get the full 
uh, sentence. So when the prosecutor comes and says, hey, we'll give you eight years for armed robbery uh, instead of, you know, potentially 20 years that you might get from a jury, you sit there and you're like, yes, sir, I'll sign, you know, I'll take my eight years instead of 20. Right. So in a lot of cases, uh, plea bargains allow our prosecutors here to put the bad guys away for a time and uh, avoid the, the time and trouble that it takes to have a, an outright jury trial. So that makes our conviction rates look very high because, of course, the, the cases you take to trial are the cases that you're sure you can get a conviction on and that are really important cases. And uh, in a lot of other cases, you're getting basically uh, guilty pleas out of uh, criminals who know that they're in trouble, right? Uh, well, in Israel, is something similar. So 97% of these cases uh, come out with convictions. And in political cases, uh, a conviction can extend to uh, a lifetime ban from running for office. Well, if that's the case, then Bibi Netanyahu cannot be prime minister, right? So uh, Bibi is very concerned about these cases. And there's a fear or a, a very well-understood thing that would happen if BB is in office, that they would find a way to get rid of the attorney general and have these cases dismissed, right? Cease to prosecute them. And while the Israeli Supreme Court has and, and would oppose that type of thing happening, uh, there's talk of the Knesset developing, uh, passing a, a bill. Now, remember, Israel has no constitution, as Ehud Barak reminded us back in episode 74. So the structure is very fluid, a majority of the Knesset can change a lot of the rules, right? Which means that they could change their structures so that the Knesset can override the Supreme Court. And if that's the case, uh, then someday would, you know, Bibi would become lawless in that he could have those cases shut down against him and continue as prime minister uh, in spite of the fact that the justice system is prosecuting him. Some back and forth on that. Now, here in the U.S., uh, our politicians are immune from prosecution in a lot of cases. Uh, they are cannot be arrested coming to or going from Congress, for example. The president of the United States has considerable immunity from prosecution while in office. Uh, obviously, <clears throat> the main prosecution of the president in America is the impeachment process, which we've seen used and abused <laughs> over the past few decades uh, in a number of cases. The... Um, the House passes basically indictments of the president and the Senate holds a trial and you need a two thirds vote of the Senate to remove the president. Uh, Alexander Hamilton was very concerned about presidents being removed from office too easily. And therefore, uh, that process was made very, very difficult uh, because he and several other framers were concerned about the idea that presidents might come and go. Uh, as we've just seen in the United Kingdom, they've had three prime ministers in four months. So... Uh, you know, there's there's sometimes that you have a lot of political chaos and that was something they wanted to avoid. Still, uh, weird things can happen. You know, in any case, uh, in Israel, that is an issue. Uh, there's the issue of social problems in Israel. There are a lot of social issues I've talked about before uh, that Israelis want addressed. The, the Orthodox, for example, get a lot of special privileges. Uh, Orthodox uh, men are excluded from the draft that every other Israeli, a Jewish Israeli, has to go to the military. Uh, Arabs and others are exempt, but often choose to serve anyway. Uh, the, the Orthodox are exempted as long as they are going to religious schools, which they do all the time. So the men don't work. 
they spend all their time in these religious schools and their wives are working, you know, three jobs and they're raising 10 kids. Uh, women in, in these communities get osteoporosis at 30 because they're so malnourished and work to the bone. <clears throat> and they're raised to think this is how life is. Uh, and people who leave the ultra-Orthodox communities uh, suffer greatly. There's a lot of suicide. There are a lot of problems. There are a lot of nonprofits in Israel that are dedicated to... Um, uh, to helping people who leave these Orthodox communities because uh, life is very, very difficult for them. They they don't have an education for secular life. They don't learn a lot of math and science. They don't have the skills to function outside of the Orthodox world. Uh, and so that, that becomes very difficult. And of course, if they leave the Orthodox world, their entire family cuts them off and acts as though they're dead. So what are you to do? Right. That, that's hard. You know, can you imagine, you know, being cut off from your whole family because of a, a, a minor dispute or disagreement? You know, and you can still practice Judaism without being Orthodox. Uh, but, uh, you know, to the to these Orthodox Haredi groups, uh, Haredi in Hebrew, uh, you know, that's tantamount to leaving the religion to them. They they don't recognize these other forms of Judaism. Uh, there are other social issues out there. Uh, poverty in the Arab-Israeli community, education issues, uh, housing issues. There's a lot of other issues that Israelis want to see addressed. And the idea of trying to build a sort of pan-Israeli culture and, and a more positive culture. These are things that are not going to happen under Bibi Netanyahu. And there's a lot of people who want those things addressed. Well, they're not going to be addressed while he's in office. His being in office means that Likud, the secular right party, will be in power, generally speaking, that the Orthodox parties will be in power. They'll get whatever they want, all kinds of social welfare benefits. Uh, they'll get their continue to have exemption from the military, and he will continue pushing religious laws into the Israeli secular law code, uh, thus basically, you know, establishing uh, religious laws. We're familiar with Sharia law, you know, Islamic law, and its imposition, and a lot of people are concerned about that. A lot of people in America will be concerned about, you know, for example, you know, bans on drinking alcohol on Sunday that come out of uh, uh, older interpretations of Christianity or uh, those that are not as popular anymore. In, in any case, these are the kinds of things that Israelis are not too happy about either. Those issues would go uh, the wrong direction for a lot of Israelis. Uh, and the hard right is pretty extreme. I mean, these guys in religious Zionists are out there for Israeli politics, way out on some, you know, tiny limb of a branch of a, a tree here. Um, some of those parties advocate violence, you know, like the violent removal of the Arabs. And this is... Uh, or have advocated in the past or strongly imply that that might be uh, an appropriate solution. In any case, uh, they're out there and there's a lot of concern about that. I don't know that they would exert the kind of influence over the government that would make them problematic, really. I mean, if they join this coalition, they're going to be Bibi's supporters, right? And, and it's going to be the Bibi show. <clears throat> Bibi Netanyahu is all about Bibi Netanyahu. But he will, you know, kowtow to them to the degree that he needs to in order to keep them in his government. And if there are issues that come up, uh, for example, this Lebanon gas deal, uh, the religious Zionists might have been unwilling to support it. And if they were, Bibi might have been unable to do it. Now, it's another one of these things that Bibi would probably have done if he were in office, uh, but he's complaining about it and saying it violates national security or whatever because, you know, he's not in office. Okay. So those are some of the negatives. Those are some of the things people are concerned about. Again, a lot of those raised in the the previous uh, Israel News episode, episode 74, with uh, Ehud Barak's uh, audio. But what are the pros for Bibi? Why are people voting for Bibi? 
right? What is Bibiism, as they call it in Israel? Basically, the ideology that Bibi Netanyahu can do no wrong, right? <laughs> Hail Bibi. Uh, no, and it, it's not quite like that, uh, but it is something like it. Populism, ideologically speaking, so you, you hear a lot of people use populism like it's a bad word. Uh, populism is uh, a word that comes from the, the Roman political movement, the Popolari, right? You had a time when you had the Popolari, like the Gracchus brothers, uh, against the Optimates, uh, people like, you know, Marius, Cato, uh, Sulla, right? These, these old, crusty, um, I don't want to call them conservatives, to, 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 a term that would, you know, uh, is used politically very differently today, but people who want to maintain the status quo, right? Uh, they're making it rich off of the state and the Roman soldiers and the, and the plebeians and those who fought the wars that made these people wealthy, they can't have access to prosperity either. So that's basically where this um, terminology comes from. And so we have a, a culture in the West today of elitism and expertism, right? We, we have these elites, these billionaires and these powerful people and the political class and all of them. And, and they're all very chummy and they're all on the same page. They all want a lot of the same things. And a lot of those things are very harmful to working people, right? To average people. Uh, on top of that, we spend a lot of time indoctrinating our experts, you know, our doctors, our uh, philosophers, teachers, scientists, all of these people go to certain schools. <clears throat> in Israel, there are even fewer schools. But in the U.S., for example, almost all of the professors in the United States come from just 20 schools, right? The so-called Ivy League and a few others, right? Those 20 schools produce the quote-unquote intelligentsia, the people that educate uh, the next generations of college graduates. And it's funny because all those college graduates come out uh, very ideologically inclined. Unless they are highly resistant to it, they come out believing a certain way. And so over time, people are hearing the same things come from all of the elites, Republicans and Democrats in America, the scientific elite, the teachers, the professors, all the quote-unquote experts, all advancing a political agenda that is desperately harmful to the working class and what have you. So people turn populist. <clears throat> they turn to leaders who say, you don't have to listen to the experts. The experts are wrong. Some of the time they are. Obviously, there's a balance to be made there. Uh, the asinine and idiotic shutdowns and lockdowns and mask mandates uh, that, that came out of the experts on the whole COVID-19 thing were ridiculous. Even as myself, uh, you know, I've studied the science of statistical analysis uh, and uh, the science of business and economy uh, because I have a business degree. Uh, so those are the sciences I've studied. Even using those tools, not knowing anything about biology, uh, epidemiology, you know, I know a little bit because I've, I've talked about history, right? The history of Yersinia pestis, the, the Black Plague, right? The plague that uh, hit Byzantium, uh, the Antonine Plague. These are very important historical events. The, the plague in, in Europe in uh, the 14th century, you know, killed a lot of people. Very impactful historical events, these uh, pandemics and epidemics of various diseases. Um, so I, I know a little bit of the history of that, but even I could tell just by statistical analysis that they were full of it, that none of those solutions would advanced for that would do anything about it. Just like none of the solutions advanced for climate change. If it's a real problem, none of them would do anything about climate change. They just create poverty among working people and do nothing about, 
you know, carbon emissions or the temperature, right? Uh, and then every volcano that goes off completely upsets all the models. Anyway, <laughs> that's that's a, a rant for a different time. But the point is, Israelis feel, a lot of Israelis feel the same way. They're getting the same message from the elites and the bureaucrats and the professors and doctors and all of that, and they're tired of it. Uh, and they look at somebody like Bibi Netanyahu, and he's their champion. And so they support him very personally, kind of like those who supported Caesar, right, in Rome. Uh, ultimately, uh, that did lead to the end of the Roman Republic. Now, in a democratic system where people are voting for Bibi, people say, oh, it's a threat to democracy. And that's rhetoric taking it a little too far. Um, it could be argued that, you know, upending the judicial system to uh, prevent Bibi Netanyahu from being prosecuted could be argued to be lawless and on pretty solid ground there. Uh, but at the same time, it, you know, you could look at it and say, well, maybe the prosecutions are overblown and trumped up and, and maybe there's not a lot to these cases. OK, so there's some balance there. Anyway, uh, so Bibi Netanyahu, uh, his blessings, the things Bibi Netanyahu have done for has done for Israel, uh, he has. Uh, he and and a few others who do also deserve credit, like Arik Sharon, uh, former prime minister, and General Ariel Sharon, uh, who has a checkered past, um, but at, at the same time uh, did a lot for Israel in terms of its uh, providing security and, and advancing free market cause, um, ultimately made Bibi Netanyahu finance minister in 2003. And you'll hear Bibi talk about uh, that in the audio I'm about to play. Uh, Bibi worked to make Israel a free market economy. And Israel has become a very entrepreneurial, very prosperous economy since then, largely because of Bibi. And people look to Bibi. Obviously, uh, Ariel Sharon, Arik is, is no longer around, so there's no one else to, to credit with that. We have a time of much greater prosperity, and people are grateful for it. Now, there's rising cost of living, problems with uh, government regulation. You know, these governments that embrace the shutdown policies, uh, they're suffering significant problems in Britain and Germany and other countries. You know, you think if you adopted idiotic and scientifically unsound policies to address, you know, the, that are very political uh, to address, uh, you know, a disease that, that did nothing about the disease. It had no impact on the disease whatsoever. Right. You would think that those could be harmful or, or have, you know, create problems to the economy or what have you. Right. And, I mean, that kind of makes sense. In any case, governments are suffering from a lot of this. And the, a lot of people think Bibi Netanyahu is the one to set it right. At the same time, Lapid's government is going along and, and doing OK on that to a certain degree. Um, general security is a thing too. Bibi Netanyahu, since he's been in office, has created for Israel the first time in its history a sense of security. Israel is a country that was born out of a terrible war. Uh, the Arabs mounted a campaign of genocide. They annihilated every village that they took, took no prisoners, whether it was the Palestinians led by the Mufti al-Husseini, uh, a collaborator with Adolf Hitler, right? Or the, you know, army of Syria, the army of Jordan, the army of Iraq, the, the Egyptian army, they were all very brutal. Uh, if the Zionists had lost that conflict, there wouldn't be any more Zionists. They'd, they'd all have been killed, right? That, that was a war of annihilation. And since then, Israel lived in this insecure world where they were surrounded by enemies. Finally, in the late 70s, Egypt made peace. Uh, then there was the Lebanon War. Then after that, uh, Iraq firing Scud missiles at Israel. Uh, the 
the Intifada and the terrorist campaign in, in the late 80s, early 90s. And then again in 2000, after Israel tried to make peace with the Palestinians, uh, you know, it really disrupted life. 800, Pal- uh, 800 Israelis were killed, uh, majority of them women, uh, overwhelming uh, number of them, you know, women and children. Right. Very few men. Whereas then Israel undertook to uh, defend itself against the uh, Arabs by going after the the terrorists and the number uh, who were killed or captured by the Israelis were overwhelmingly young men engaged in terrorist activities or, or shooting at Israeli forces. But Bibi, since he came to office in 2009 has had several flare-ups on uh, Hamas uh, attacking Israel or uh, flare-ups of of knife attacks and terrorist attacks emanating from Judea and Samaria. Yet he has managed to maintain security. And with Israel's strong economy, Israel's defense has improved. Israel has more submarines. Israel has better airplanes like the F-35. Israel has better tanks, better technology, better equipment. The Iron Dome that defends Israel against attacks, which began uh, being developed during Ariel Sharon's time and uh, under Defense Minister Ehud Barak, the aforementioned. So... Uh, Israel has a much better sense of security than they've ever had. And a lot of people associate that very directly with Bibi Netanyahu, including the the terrorists, right? The enemies of Israel know that when Bibi Netanyahu is in office, they don't mess with him. Uh, You know, they know what to expect. And he gave them another lesson in that back in May when uh, Hamas was firing rockets into Israel again. Uh, There was this tweet from the IDF suggesting that they were about to engage in a ground operation in Gaza. So Hamas sent all of their guys, they they, they get all of this concrete uh, from, uh, you know, donated to them to help build housing and such. Well, they use it to build tunnels underground, terror tunnels. So we call it the, the Gaza Metro. So they put a bunch of guys in the Gaza metro, had all those tunnels armed and filled with troops. Uh, the the Iranians uh, who supply Hamas have been frustrated by Hamas's failure to inflict more Israeli casualties. So the, the Hamas was under a lot of pressure to, you know, to fight back and really give the Israelis a hard time, you know, start hitting them in the rear. Right. So Israeli forces might advance into a certain town. And as they're leaving that town, guys will come out of the tunnel and attack them from behind. Something like this. OK, so there was a there was a lot of so they get down in the Gaza metro and then Israel, instead of launching the ga- the ground campaign, uh, launched a number of airstrikes with, you know, p- ground penetrating bombs like the bunker buster and blew up the tunnels. Cost, you know, t- killing a lot of Hamas fighters. Hamas was so embarrassed and weakened by it, they had no choice but to uh, call a ceasefire. And since then, there have been very few rockets. There have been a few flare-ups here and there. Mostly, those flare-ups are there to test Yair Lapid and the chain block government. Why? Because they're a new government. They don't know these guys. Is is Was Naftali Bennett or now Yair Lapid, were they tough enough to handle it, right? You don't have this problem with Bibi Netanyahu. He's also like an elder statesman. There's a there's an ad he ran back in the 2015 campaign when he was really seriously embattled for the first time. <clears throat> uh, the left-wing parties had left the government. There was a sense that there was a chance to unseat him. Uh, the United States, Barack Obama, was spending a lot of public money, U.S. taxpayer dollar money, to uh, unseat Bibi Netanyahu. And... Uh, 
it didn't work. It just led to a more right-wing government. You can go read the, back then I used to, to blog for Times of Israel. If you go to the Times of Israel website, to the blogs, look me up, you can read those articles and you can see uh, that uh, I wrote about how, when that happened, that, that I was just going to lead to a more right-wing government under still Bibi Netanyahu. And that's what happened. Uh, so once again, I predicted the future, um, like I've talked about uh, before. Anyway, uh, he ran some ads back then talking about himself as this elder statesman figure. And the, the, while they're funny, if you want to look them up, uh, one of them is the BB sitter. If you look it up, it's in Hebrew, but it has uh, subtitles. And, you know, it's like, you know, who would you want to have babysit your children? It's an interesting euphemism for politics, right? I mean, political leaders have to be there to protect the country, right? Well, you know, what about looking after your children for a night? And so they, they have this sort of comical exchange between BB and the parents about, you know, well, who could better look after the children? And, you know, who would you trust? And this kind of thing. Uh, another shows uh, Netanyahu as the teacher in a kindergarten classroom and portrays the other political leaders, including Yair Lapid and then uh, political opponent C.P. Levney as children running around in the Knesset. It's hilarious. Uh, I, I've always liked those ads. They were clever. Um so, you know, but people look at Bibi Netanyahu. He's part of an older generation uh, who fought and struggled to protect Israel. Uh, you know, <clears throat> speaking of leaders, you know, back in 1972, uh, there was a hijacking and, you know, there was a uh, an Israeli plane taken and they, they landed on the tarmac in Ben-Gurion and were demanding the release <clears throat> of several uh, terrorists uh, for... Uh, in exchange for uh, the passengers. Well, Bibi Netanyahu and Ehud Barak, the two of them, as commandos at the time, uh, blew out the windows of the cockpit and climbed in and killed the terrorists. And, and there were a few hostages, unfortunately, who were killed, but they were able to kill the terrorists. Now, these are these are men who stormed a plane together. <clears throat> right. So these are these are not wimpy guys. Right. So these these are tough leaders. So you look at that generation and Bibi Netanyahu is the last of that generation still in office, still pursuing political office. So a lot of people look to Bibi as this elder statesman. And as you're about to hear in his own words, uh, he'll describe some of this. Uh, Bibi Netanyahu uh, is going to, you know, in this audio clip, uh, he's talking to a number of, uh, you know, Canadian soldiers and the question comes up, you know, well, how did Israel build its, its strong defense? And so he begins by asking them, you know, well, what do you need in order to survive? And, and so it kind of goes from there. And he describes the economic reforms that happened and the changes that resulted as, as part of that. And this gives you a fair sense of where Bibi's coming from in terms of how he approaches the election. Rather than addressing specific issues like the change block is trying to do, or like Ehud Barak said, you know, the, the, the right is trying to avoid talking about the issues. They don't want to talk about the issues. They just want to talk about Bibi and all the good things he's done because, you know, that's that. Um, and so, you know, you can, you can hear him describe his own, uh, in his own words, uh, why... I guess you could you could say, you know, things he's done in the past lead to, well, why should he come back as prime minister into the future? So with no further ado, Bibi Netanyahu, in his own words. Obviously, the first thing you need is, what do you need to survive? Class? Roof over your head. No, I, no, not a roof over your head. We need you guys. We need, we need an army, right? We need weapons. We need... You know, in today's terms, F-35, drones, submarines, intel, you know. And there's one quality about it, and we did. We developed that very nicely. But, you know, as time, as the decades pass, 
these uh, weapon systems have, uh, and intel systems have one unfortunate quality. You know what that is? They cost a lot of money. So we had to build not only a military capacity that we had early on, but we had to create an economy, economic capacity. And for that, uh, I led really a free market revolution here, mm-hmm. both as prime minister, but uh, also and especially as finance minister in the early 2000s. Okay? And we changed Israel. We turned it into a market uh, economy. I believe in free markets, but I also <laughs> I believe them also for a collectivist reason, not only for individual rights, but for a collectivist reason, because that, that's the only way we can create the uh, the wealth that is necessary to support a strong military, a strong military intelligence. Uh, we've passed in GDP per capita uh, Japan uh, and uh, Britain and France and Canada, no offense. Uh, <laughs> And uh, two weeks ago, I'm, I was informed that we passed Germany. And that's because we married our technological capacity that has a perpetual motion engine in our military, especially in military intelligence. But, you know, you come out of military intelligence, like my brother-in-law was a brilliant pilot and became a te- brilliant technologist. And he was working here, you know, 40 years ago. He came out of 45 years ago. He worked for one of the companies. Couldn't stand the bureaucracy, the taxes, and so on. I went to work for a small company called Intel. Uh, <laughs> his son came back here and just did these unbelievable exits here. So we married the technological capacity that you have. Technological capacity by itself does not produce wealth. Science and education by itself does not produce wealth. Otherwise, the Soviet Union would have been a very wealthy country. It had the greatest mathematicians, physicists, metallurgists, you name it. Right? But they were dirt poor, and they still are. We married that capacity to free markets and created the other component. That is, you know its importance. You know how important that is. Uh, and we're an intelligence power. So there you have it. When, you, when it comes to politics, uh, past accomplishments are a really big thing when you're running. Uh, obviously, the ability to run on a record uh, is a big thing. Now, Yair Lapid and the change block have a very short record. They've been in office for a year with, uh, you know, within that year, they've accomplished a number of great diplomatic feats uh, that are very impressive. And they've managed the economy and, and done OK, but they haven't done great, some could argue. And some fear that they're they're too chummy, you know, too eager to negotiate. Uh, that's up to the voters. Right. So, uh, again, you're an Israeli voter. You're looking at the current situation. There are still threats out there. There are still dangerous people. Uh, cost of living is rising. You're concerned about the future. You're concerned about the economy. You might turn to someone whose experience is with getting the economy and improving the economy. Uh, as we're about to hear, there's also a, a lot of people who look to how he handled the the uh, virus crisis and think he handled it well. He got the vaccines out quickly uh, and that kind of thing. There's a lot of people who credit him for managing that well, uh, in their opinion. <clears throat> so that's another thing. So again, there, there's a lot of positives. So what are the main benefits of electing BB? More of the same. He'll keep doing what he's always done, providing security, providing prosperity, and leading like an elder statesman. Uh, the drawbacks being that the justice system will 
be different, right? And there are some other things going on there. So uh, we'll see about that. Now, uh, in this case, you're going to hear uh, the next is a BB supporter. He's a spokesman for Likud uh, who spoke recently to France 24 News. Uh, his name is Dror Halop. Uh, Mr. Halop is a, a, you know, an advocate for Likud, <clears throat> and uh, granted, I, I could have looked for more audio from BB himself, but this case, I happened to be listening to this interview, and he just really hit the nail on the head of what BB supporters think and how they look at BB, and so I thought this would be really poignant and prescient for you, my audience, to hear him advocate for BB so well. Uh, so <clears throat> the question that was pitched to him before he began his segment was, did you think the change block would last as long as it did? Because a lot of people saw that the change block uh, is made up of parties in the far right and the far left. Would it survive or would Bibi Netanyahu come back to office? And so he's going to start off by talking about why he thought uh, the change block would survive longer because the parties that were involved had a vested interest in staying in office. Uh, and then he'll go into talking about uh, Bibi Netanyahu's accomplishments and what Israelis who support Bibi expect from him in the future. No, um, I'm, I'm pretty sure, I, I was sure that they will last even another extra year because I saw that all the uh, segments, all the parties in this um, government um, have gained gains that they would never have in the usual uh, circumstances. Um, it's important to say that, uh, just as uh, Yossi Ona, MK, former MK, have said, it's ridiculous because this government only became uh, possible because of personal um, prohibition, uh, personal uh, effects against Netanyahu. And if you will take Netanyahu out of the out of the equation, um, the most of the Israeli population is is going towards the right wing, right ideology. Um, the only issue which is turning to be different than it used to be until now is the ability to work together with um, Arab, uh, some of the Arab representatives. Um, I believe that um, there's a good chance that even Netanyahu will try to form a government with Mansour Abbas. Uh, I, first, uh, I, I personally think it's a good thing as long as um, the Arab uh, parties uh, uh, try to do uh, to work together and not trying to work against Israel. It's important to say that even with the uh, one year of uh, Netanyahu leading with Benny Gantz, with this half government that used to be, Netanyahu was one of the biggest leaders that the people of Israel have had since King David. He brought many, many um, accomplishments to the state of Israel with the corona, with COVID-19, um, working against the, with the vaccines in, in the corona, with um, Abraham, uh, Abraham agreements. Um, I think that he is the best Israeli leader that we had until now, and he brought us <coughs> brought us those accomplishments when he had his hands tied. I believe that we are going to um, election um, elections that the Likud will get 40 seats out of 120, and Netanyahu will be able to gain a, a wide, large, coherent coalition and will be able to continue um, the state of Israel for prosperous future. So there you have it. That's what Bibi Netanyahu supporters expect from him. Uh, Bibi, I would note, is very popular internationally. As you've heard, he speaks very good English. He advocates for himself very well and, uh, you know, travels to the U.S. quite often. So a lot of Americans come to think of him as a good leader for Israel. Obviously, Israelis themselves will determine that. But uh, looking at the polls, 
you know, there's some chance, depending on how turnout is and proportionality, that he'll be returning to office and uh, some chance that the election will be another bust and go on. Now, in that case, if there is a sixth election to be held, Yair Lapid and the change bloc will remain in power as the interim government and Bibi will remain opposition leader. So it's not necessarily good for Bibi and not necessarily all that bad for Yair Lapid. Uh, Basically, Israel's been governed by these interim governments uh, since 2019, and uh, with the exception of the the one year <clears throat> that Bibi Netanyahu and Benny Gantz formed a temporary unity government to deal with the COVID crisis, and the one year of the change bloc, right? That they came in in, in June and basically broke up in in August. So the following August. So <clears throat> uh, that's that's what would happen. Will Bibi Netanyahu retire? Resign, leave office. That's unlikely. We'll see. So if this goes on to a sixth election, who knows? Uh, A lot of Israelis are tired of voting. They really would like the government to set up a government one way or another. And after five elections, you'd think that maybe some of the people who oppose Bibi after seeing him win might think, hey, you know what? We'll we'll sit in government with him uh, so long as the far right doesn't sit in government or uh, something like that. Time, possibly Benny Gantz or Gidon Saar. Possibly also Yair Lapid, if he could get himself in as, as foreign minister or something. Uh, but again, that's not that likely. Um, <clears throat> it's also possible uh, that <clears throat> parties that are with Bibi could betray him. That if he loses again, that uh, one of the orthodox parties might say, hey, to heck with it. Uh, we know we'd prefer Bibi, but he's not winning. Maybe we'll go sit in government with the change block. I mean, you just never know. Never say never. But most Israelis would like this election to produce a result, that the Knesset would form some kind of government that would last until, you know, the end of the term, you know, three or four years. Right. So we'll we will see what happens. You, of course, my audience are extremely well informed once again. So you've heard in episode 74, my last Israeli uh, news episode in election special, uh, the left's narrative and their concerns going into this election. And now here you have heard the rights narrative and its concerns and and hopes and aspirations going into this election and direct audio from leaders among uh, both sides. So we go on from here. Uh, The election is Tuesday. Uh, so uh, this episode will be released on Monday, so that'll be tomorrow to you listening the first day it's released. Uh, Maybe in the past, uh, if you're listening after that. And uh, I will do a quick, perhaps, uh, election special on the day of in order to offer you just the early results. It might take a day or or so. You know, it'll, it'll be into Wednesday, our time, before the elections are certified and finalized approximately. There are a lot of votes from soldiers and the elderly that take longer to count, that they come in late, and the soldiers are numerous, so that that can definitely have an impact. In the last election, because of the virus and and, uh, that sort of thing, those votes leaned a little more to the left. This time, because that's all in the past, uh, it's thought that those votes will probably lean a little to the right. So when we get basically the election night results, we can expect that if there's any change, it's going to be slightly to the right of where it is. Um, That's the analysis anyway. You never know. Uh, We'll see, I suppose. And I'll give you that analysis when I have it. Uh, 
Uh, in the meantime, please visit the website, InsideIsrael.News. Uh, go look at the uh, Red Wave article on PoliticalVanguard.com. And the contributors section, PoliticalVanguard.com, is the home of Inside Israel News. And uh, check Inside Israel News out on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok. Uh, I'm, I'm in all those platforms. And slowly but surely getting these up on YouTube. Uh, there's, a, there's a delay of a couple days, and I apologize for that. It's just very difficult to find the time to take the time to, to put those together that way. So with that, as always, I will say goodbye, Lahitrob.